two of Paul's controversy tour uh, through the book of Romans. And today we're looking at the question of destiny. This is the, uh, the question on Megamind's mind. Um, this, this idea of fate or destiny. Are we, do we have the free will to make our own choices? Or especially when it comes to God and when it comes to faith and the way that we interact with God? Or has everything already been pre-scripted? Has it already been sort of laid out for us and we're just sort of playing our roles as it goes through? We've uh, seen this in, actually we've danced around this quite a lot, in um, different passages in Romans already. And this language that has been coming through of election or predestination or uh, choice by God. And so I want to start off by reading a passage we, we avoided last, um, last week, but can no longer do so. Just um, get myself together here. I'm going to probably have you run through the script for the uh, script for the passage. All right, so this is John, uh, Romans chapter 9, starting in verse, let's see, where are we? 14, there we go, starting in verse 14. Paul, the writer, says, What shall, then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on who I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has shown mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? I mean, who can resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? So, Interesting passage of Scripture, isn't it? It's passages like this that give rise to the idea that actually we don't have as much choice or as much say in the matter about how our lives go or how our salvation goes as we might have first thought. But perhaps that God has pre-planned everything to be the way He wants it, not based on our choices, but based on His. Of course, you go through different parts of the Bible and you will see lots of other different passages painting a very different picture. Passages calling us to choose God, to choose repentance, to, you know, follow Him. The classic, choose this day who you will serve, God or yourself. These are classic passages that also paint a picture that actually we do choose where we end up or what we do, that it's our free will choice. And so this sets up this really interesting argument, conversation, controversy between what is called predestination or um, uh, reformation, uh, reformed theology or Calvinism, we'll get to that in a second, and free will or the ability for us to choose. 
probably come across this argument maybe uh, sometimes. If you've been in church for a little while, this sort of thing tends to crop up every now and then. And it's an issue that's been argued for quite a while. It was first introduced by St. Augustine in the early 400 AD, and I do not know exactly why he's holding a burning heart in his hand or why his head seems to be also on fire. Um, Perhaps he pulled it from, I don't know. Anyway, this is St. Augustine, or at least some artist rendering of him. And in the early 400s AD, so very, very quickly after the church has started to form, after Jesus was on earth, he's starting to teach this idea that God is the one who chooses who goes to heaven and who doesn't. His argument is that salvation is a free gift from God, which he did pull straight from Scripture, not something that humans could choose. How could we? How could we choose God? How can us fallen people choose God? It is Him who chooses us. So he started this, but it didn't really get popular until we come across a guy called John Calvin in the 1500s who taught the same thing. And his commitment to his unwavering, uncompromising commitment to the sovereignty or the kingship, the all-powerfulness of God, led him to follow along this idea that we cannot choose him. God must choose us. It is his choice. In fact, it's followed on another belief that we are so, what's called, depraved, or we are so lost, so broken, that we have no ability in ourselves to even believe in God. Our sinful nature is so all-encompassing in our lives that there is no possible way that we could even come to an understanding of who God is. He must provide not only salvation, not only to choose us, but to give us faith to follow Him. That was what he was believing. And this idea came, became known as Calvinism. And it's grown to include a range of different ideas. You may have come across this idea called the tulip There's five different beliefs of Calvinism, which we're not going to get into today because we don't have time. But you may have thought that a Calvinist is a person who reads Calvin and Hobbes comics. Um, And you're actually kind of right because Calvin and Hobbes were named after John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes was a philosopher who also had some very interesting ideas about religion. Anyway, so you can be a Calvinist and a Calvinist at the same time. All right. So as time has gone on, this argument has become very heated and very divisive amongst the people of God. But thankfully, a combination of sarcasm and the internet has helped to cool things down considerably because nothing suggests, nothing helps unity like a good old meme battle on the internet. And so I had a lot of fun going and checking out all of these different memes about the way that people see each other in those. Hopefully you can read those. Batman says, you ignored its historical context. If you twist the scripture just right, ah, here we are, libertarian free will. And Armenian Bible study leader, okay, you're open your eyes to Romans, Romans 9. Because <laughs> blind, get it? Okay. Um, and then Calvinist tries to explain where Calvinism is in the Bible. Uh, But my all-time favorite one, of course, the Calvinist is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he was predestined to. (laughs) All right, so this is a big topic. And it's a topic where each side has become firmly entrenched 
in many ways. Not everyone, of course, is as firmly entrenched as others. But it has happened this way over many, many generations. So I am not going to pretend like I am going to be the final word on the topic today. I'm not going to be able to give you all of the nuances, all of the different ins and outs of the topic or the conversation or anything like that. And probably I'm not even going to be able to come to a satisfactory conclusion for you. And I'm sorry about that, but that's okay. But hopefully what we can do is just have a little bit more of an understanding of this issue and how we can engage it with Scripture. Now, first things first. Wherever we land on this idea of predestination or Calvinism and the opposite side is often called Arminianism after a guy called Arminian, I think. I don't know if he was from Armenia, but um, either way, that's, that's what it's called, Armenianism. Uh, so wherever we land, we need to understand one thing very, very clearly, and that is this. God does what God wants. God does what God wants. Specifically, God does what brings Him glory, what makes His name great. This is... Um, expressed over and over and over in Scripture. Like last week, I said, it is not about us. It is about Him and what He wants. So, we must be very, very careful when we engage with a topic like this that we are not putting God in a box. We are not attempting to tell God how He must be or what He must choose. But rather, we are looking at His words to try and determine what He has decided Himself about how He will interact and engage with humanity. Does that make sense? Do we see the subtle difference between those two things? So, unfortunately, what that means is us not liking it is not going to cut it for an argument for or against predestination. It's not going to work. Because it's not about what we like. It's not about what makes us comfortable. It's not about what sits well. But rather, it is about us trusting and obeying what He has said about Himself. Now, that doesn't mean there's a clear answer. (laughs) Because what He has said about Himself can be read in different ways. And so that is where we have this conversation. Yeah? Now, second thing. This is actually not a question of whether predestination exists or not. We often, uh, we, we label this whole theology, this idea that God chooses who is saved and who is not as predestination. But actually, predestination is not something we can argue because the Bible says it is true over and over and over again. This idea that God has pre-planned, that He has looked ahead and He has planned out what is going to happen is just there. It's in Scripture. It's expressly stated. A good example is in Romans. Uh, it's not Romans. We're in Romans. A good example is in Revelation, where the, at the end of time, there's this picture of the end of time, and this book comes out. And this book is called the Book of Life. And in it is written all of the names of the people who are part of God's family, all of the Christians throughout history who have chosen God or have become part of God's family, Right? But this book was written before the foundation of the world, is what it says. So before anyone ever lived, God had written down everyone's name who was going to be a Christian. That was pre-planned. 
predestined. And there's lots of other passages along that. However, the question is not whether God pre-planned. The question is whether that pre-planning negates our choices or is based on our choices. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes? No? I think <laughs> Tom's ready to leave. All right, that's good. <laughs> All right, there's a key verse here. Key verses comes down to is Romans 8.29. And we've come across this passage before. And it says, For those God foreknew, He also predestines. Right there. To be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. All right, so this verse and the verses around it. In fact, He says in the next verses that those who He predestined, He called and those he called, he justified and glorified and all of that sort of stuff. So it's all part of that plan. And so we, we kind of look at that and we see very strong predestination language. I mean, it's right there. He, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of God. And what I really appreciated about what Ty mentioned a few weeks ago is that the thrust of this passage is actually not explaining predestination because that's kind of assumed in Paul's writings, but it's actually to explain the purpose of it, which is to be conformed, to become like Jesus, which is really cool. Okay, so that's there, and that kind of becomes a very obvious sort of thing. However, there is another word that is in here that becomes the focal point for this conversation, and that word is for new. And this is the battleground, if you will, between the Calvinist camp and the Arminius camp. This idea of what does it mean that God foreknew? He knew beforehand. Those he foreknew, he predestined. So, I mean, how does that change things? How does that give us two different paths to walk down? And I want to very quickly lay out how two different groups might interpret that word foreknowledge and how that plays out um, in human history. Now, Again, very simplistic explanation. I apologize to those who are theologically trained and who are kind of like, man, you are just really skimming the top of the iceberg here. I am. But hopefully this will help us um, understand it just a little bit before. Okay. So the first option is our choice. Before anything was made, foreknowledge means that God, before he started creating, he looked at everything that happened throughout the future. Now, we understand, well, we try to understand that God is outside of time, okay? So God doesn't start at the beginning and then move through to the end like we do. He is outside of that. Time is a construct that he created. So he can look at it. He can look at the whole of human history right there in front of him. It's kind of like, you remember the, the um, Back to the Future movies and Doc Brown would always create this model of his plan? This is kind of like what God was doing. He was looking at the entirety of what was going to happen in the future, right? And as he looks at this, and he sees all of the people who are ever going to exist, and he sees who are the ones that are going to choose him, and who are the ones that are not. So he sees our choices, they're still our choices, but he sees them, and then he predetermines, he pre-plans, that we will be chosen and we will be brought into the kingdom of God. So he will organize human history to reach us in that sense. Does that make sense? So he sees, yes, that people in this group are going to say yes to him. So he is going to make it happen. That's what foreknowing and predestining is in that sense. At the same time, he sees all of those people who will not choose him. 
And so he is now free to raise up, harden their hearts, do whatever he wants to those people in order to fulfill his plan, his will to, for us to, be, uh, to accept him. And he does, he's got that freedom because they've already chosen against him. They've already chosen their path, and so he is going to, in a sense like Pharaoh, raise him up, harden his heart, turn him against God. All right, well, that's one choice. The next one is, no, it's God's choice. God also looks at the story of humanity before creation. He looks out at Doc Brown's creation here, and he sees... And instead of seeing some people choose him and other people not, what he sees is that no one chooses him. He sees that the depth of depravity of humanity gets so deep, so powerful, that people are so self-motivated, so rebellious against God, so incredibly just trapped in their wrongness. He says no one's ever going to choose him. They can't. They're just so wrapped up in their sin that they cannot choose him. They're lost in their sinness, in sinfulness and their brokenness, and they cannot even bring themselves to believe in God. So, he sees that, and then he decides in an act of mercy that he is going to save at least some of them. And he is going to pick them. How does he pick them? Not our, not our <laughs> concern. This is what they would say. This is beyond our pay grade to determine why God chooses some and not others. Who is, the, who is the clay to say to the potter, why did you choose them and not me? My son's Lego creation cannot tell my son that he's done a bad job and that he's put them together wrong. It's his choice, right? That's the argument here, that he decides some are going to be saved because he wants them to bring him glory. Their salvation shows how much grace and mercy and compassion he has on those people, and that brings him glory. So he chooses them. And not only does he choose them to be saved, but he gives them all of the faith that they are going to need to follow him. The rest of humanity now just serve to demonstrate to those people to the elect, to the chosen, how incredible God is. Their judgment, which is just, because it is their sinfulness, shows the elect how gracious God is to have chosen them. Those are the two different paths or arguments. And by the way, the irony of having chosen Back to the Future is that... Um, there's a kind of misconception or a conception amongst the Calvinist camp that people in the Arminiists are like Marty McFly. You know, they have a good heart, but they're a little dim-witted and, you know, they, they're a little immature, scripturally. And the, the conception that Arminiists have of Calvinists is Doc Brown, that they're incredibly smart, but they're a little crazy and out of touch with reality. You know, so that's, that's the sort of the stereotypes that each side has of the other. All right, so this is, this is where it comes down to, is our choice or God's choice. So, which is correct? You're just waiting. What is he going to say? <laughs> Should we vote? Yeah. 
<laughs> wow, this is a great question. Thank you. And I will roll around to that, and you're stealing my thunder, and don't do that. <laughs> Although I can't help it, you were predetermined to do that. So. This is good times for jokes. Okay, so this is the thing. There are strong arguments for each perspective. I think we need to be really clear and really honest about this. That really, really smart people on both sides of the camp dive into Scripture and come out of that study with one view or the other. Okay, We do need to understand that. We also need to understand that it's not a dichotomy or a sort of one or the other. It is more of a spectrum. And there is people who sit on the spectrum of completely over here, five-point Calvinists, you know, will only go to a church that teaches that. And all the people over here in Arminianists who are going to be very, very surprised when the Calvinists turn up in heaven. So there's, there's a whole range and in between. And this is interesting for me because I grew up probably a little bit more staunchly Arminianist. And this is what my education was. This was my teaching that it is very much, it's our choice. And we kind of didn't really spend a lot of time talking about passages like Romans 9 and, and passages like Pharaoh being hardened because it was a little bit tricky. I have found in this study some movement even within myself. Not, I'm not, I probably wouldn't go past the middle line and I wouldn't call myself a Calvinist. I do believe and will teach probably from here a, a free will choice element. But it has helped me to understand and appreciate the other side of the argument. So what is that? What are the benefits from each perspective? How can the other side of that argument teach us about God? And I will say this. A Calvinist viewpoint of the world enhances the sovereignty and respect for God. And this is something that we sorely lack in the church. We want God to do what makes us happy. We tend to evaluate our understanding of who God is and our understanding of Scripture, whether it makes us comfortable or not. We don't talk about certain things. We start pulling out certain theologies, and sometimes it's good to question and not just blindly believe things, but look into and study things. But we start pulling things out like hell. We don't like hell. Hell doesn't make sense, so I'm going to start pulling that down. And we, we start talking about certain cultural social issues. These don't make sense. This is un, unhelpful, so I'm going to start pulling that down. And we do that because somewhere deep inside of us, we have established the idea that actually we are in control. We are the ones who determine. It is our intellect, it is our understanding and wisdom that helps us understand what is right and true and proper. Calvinism helps to take that away from us and to put God back on the throne. And I believe that is good. It keeps our focus on Him and not on ourselves. Now, the other side of the coin, Arminianism makes probably more sense of God's loving nature and calls for us to repent. It helps us to understand why God asks us to choose Him. It does not make sense necessarily for us to choose God if the choice has already been made. Why would He ask that of us? It also helps to avoid some of the awkward concepts of God creating people for the sole purpose of destroying them and not even giving them a chance to have a say in the matter. 
And it makes more sense of the fact, and again, this is not a feeling-based thing, but it, it makes sense of the fact that we do have a sense of free will. We do choose. We choose God, at least in our own understanding. And we have an awareness that what we are doing is free will. So the presence of that is an interesting argument. So anyway, both sides help to give us something of a stronger understanding of God. And you could make a case for either. In fact, I would suggest that if someone asked me, and I'm getting to you, Katie, I'm getting to you. If someone wants to ask me, Hamish, who chooses, God or people? My best answer would probably be yes. Yes. Do I understand how that works? No. (laughs) But do I see in Scripture constantly this idea that God says, choose me, choose me, follow me, give up your life and follow me. Again and again and again, there is this choice laid before us. What will you choose? Who will you choose to serve this day? That choice is right there. So we are asked to engage with that choice. We are asked to engage with that choice daily not just once to become a Christian, but constantly to follow in the footsteps of God. And yet I also see again and again and again in Scripture this idea that if God did not choose us, we would not be able to choose Him. We see faith as this thing that we show to God, but also that He gives to us. It is something that He enables us, that as we It's almost like this dance that he draws us closer and then we engage and then he engages. And, you know, and I don't know how it works. (laughs) This is just helpful for my mind to understand that. But there is this partnership that happens. Not an equal partnership. Never hear that I say equal partnership. But a partnership between us and God that we choose him, he chooses us. How does it happen first? I don't know. And this kind of rolls into Katie's good point of practically, in a practical sense, theologically our understanding of God shifts wildly between the two ideas. But practically how we live our day-to-day lives is almost negligible if we are doing it right. Problem comes is our presumptions about what the other side actually does or thinks. I had this really interesting conversation with uh, someone who was a Reformed pastor. So he, he was Calvinist. He believed that and we were sort of talking about the possibility of partnership in a certain area. And so we're sort of like dancing around this elephant in the room, like, you know, I'm not really Calvinist, and you kind of are, so how's that going to play out? And it was interesting that he said, I'm okay with how, what you believe as long as what you believe doesn't stop you from praying. And I found that very, very weird because my extreme perception of Calvinism is that If you believe that, then you might stop praying. Because why would you pray to God and ask him for something he's already decided? It took the, you know, it doesn't make sense to do that. And he's thinking, well, because it's all our choices, why would we pray? We just do everything in our own strength. And so it's this perception that we had of the other side that created this divide. That the more we talk, the more we understand what people actually believe, the hear the arguments that people have, we find this sort of coming together in the middle. And I've done this uh, more recently with another um, pastor friend of mine who, 
who is, again, he, he's Calvinist. And, and the more we sort of unpacked, well, what do you believe? Well, what do you believe? We sort of ended up sort of sitting on both sides of the wall. Like him on his side of the wall and me on my side of the wall, but the distance between us wasn't really that far at all. Because here's the thing, practically, what changes? In either scenario, God is God and God does what God wants. Right? No one takes the sovereignty away from God. No one takes kingship away from God, whether we want to or not, whether we try to or not. Not asked to take, he's God. And in either scenario, we still go and choose to follow him. Whether that choice is being made for us or whether we are making that choice, honestly, is above our pay grade as well. We don't know. We don't know. So we go and do. We obey like he asked us to. If we turns out in heaven, it's like, ha, you thought you were choosing, it was just me. Oh, well, <laughs> great joke. And we have a little ice cream and we move on. But as far as it goes day to day, we still choose. We still share Christ. And the, the perception we have of Calvinism, there's no need to evangelize because God's already chosen. <laughs> but we don't know who he's chosen. <laughs> he's still asking us to be the mechanism and the voice out into the community to share the story of who Jesus is, to help people to understand him. That's what we do. But it actually reminds us that the results aren't ours anyway, right? Which we always said, our job is just to share. That hasn't changed. And we still worship God as God. Whether we like the things that He has chosen to do or whether we sit uncomfortably with the things that He has chosen to do doesn't actually make a difference because He still deserves our worship as the creator of the universe. It's the same. So this issue, and, and, and I do have a belief, and, and you may have a belief, and we can talk about this, it should not create division amongst us. It should not create division amongst us. But it is going to be something that Satan uses to do exactly that. And usually when he does that, we find out it's not so much about the theology, but about us. And us staking our claim, and us being right, or whatever. So let's be a people of peace. A people open to hearing what people say, and... Let's be a people committed to understanding who God is from his words in the Bible. We do that even if we come out at different, different conclusions, different ideas on some of these issues. We can still be friends. We can still worship God together. Does that make sense? Hey, controversy tour over, guys. You made it. In fact, you made it through the theological deep mud of Romans, and next week is actually Fano Sunday, so we won't be getting into Romans next week, but the week after that, we get to go a little bit lighter, a little bit more practical, a little bit more fun with that, all right? Cool! All right, I'm going to pray. Lord, just I thank you so much. We come across some of these really difficult issues, and you probably just sigh and shake your head at the way that we have created castles around our beliefs and, and sent out armies against other beliefs and just really dug in and fought over this stuff. And maybe that started from a, a deep desire to honor you in the way that you want to be honored, but it kind of turned into something else entirely. And so, Lord, we just ask your forgiveness, first of all, for creating dishonor in your name for the way that we have conducted ourselves. And secondly, Lord, we pray for wisdom and humility as we engage some of these topics. 
as we try to understand who you are and how you've created us and how you engage and interact with us. Whatever we end up with that, Lord, may we understand firstly that you are God. You are sovereign. You're in charge. You can do what you want. And also may we understand and appreciate that what you chose to do was to love us. You loved us. You chose us. However you decided to choose us, Lord, you did. And we are truly and eternally thankful for that. We praise you. You are worthy of praise. And it's your name we pray. Amen.